This is the Average to Savage podcast with Paul Garino. Everyone and anyone, athletes, celebs, and much more. What's up, everybody? I'm back for another episode of the Average Savage podcast. Our special guest today is David Beckerman, founder of Starter. Dave, how's it going? Terrific. How you doing? Good, good, good. Could you just give us like a brief summary about yourself? I'm originally uh, born and bred in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Went to uh, uh, James Hill House High School. Graduated uh, then from University of New Haven. Started uh, working in the uh, in business uh, after that. Then started uh, starter in 1971 uh, and left in '96. Perfect. So you graduated from UNH from in 1996 and you created starter in 1971. So how how the idea? No, no, no. And I started Starter five years later. Yeah, so what So what gave you the idea to create Starter? Well, it was really a uh, uh, development of a niche. Um, during the summertime, uh, slow-pitch softball was a real big fad. And uh, I noticed, uh, you know, everybody wanted the best equipment and wearing what the professionals wear. But there was one item which happened to be a windbreaker. Mm-hmm. And all of the windbreakers had an elastic cuff um, uh, on their wrists. Well, the problem was that if you were a big guy, that elastic cuff would cut off your circulation. If you were a small, had a small wrist, the air would go through. So I uh, just casually said to one, one of my friends, why don't they put a knit cuff on it? And no one had that. So I said, you know what, I'm going to try to do that. Um, and I went out and uh, bought a couple of samples and then bought some uh, materials and went to a tailor and I said, take this feature from this sample, take this feature from that sample and make a sample. Uh, and then we made the, the first starter uh, jacket, uh, which at that time wasn't licensed. It was just for the institutional trade. And uh, then I started to show them to retailers to see if there was an interest. Um, we ran into some problems, but uh, uh, those problems I've always believed you take a negative and turn it into a positive. That problem was is that all of the retailers um, had jackets that uh, had elastic cuffs. So here we would come in with a, I was showing a, uh, a sample with a knit cuff and consequently that was a different inventory. So they couldn't mix it. That was the negative. The positive was is, is that we, I turned around and told them that uh, they could have an exclusive in the area so that it improved their gross margins when they sold it. Gotcha, gotcha. Could you talk to me about a little of like how you came up with the name Starter and also the logo? The name Starter, first of all, people in generally remember one word. If you start thinking about the great brands mm-hmm. uh, all over the world, whether it be Ford or Polo or Coke or, or whatever, people tend to remember one word, Heinz. Um, uh, you know, so uh, mm-hmm. it made sense uh, that I wanted one word. Second is um, a starter was I always wanted to be a starter, not a substitute. Yeah. yeah. How'd you come up with the the logo with the S and the? Well, and the star? Um, uh, a man by the name of Billy Silverman, uh, who's passed on from Silverman Group. Um, uh, he and I collaborated, and we uh, came up with the idea of. Uh, a logo with a star because we were uh, ultimately trying to get to the stars and uh, 
that's it combined both of them together. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, iconic logo right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know you briefly touched on it uh, before, but like, what was it like just figuring out like all the manufacturing stuff? And I'm pretty sure probably back then it was harder than it is today. Well, well, first before that, you you need to settle on and how you're going to get the money. Yeah. Uh, How long did that process take? Like years or months or like at the beginning? And then, and then what was like your first break, break, breakthrough for starter like that put it on the map Uh, 
just a, a little little company. Yeah. Uh, he uh, was appreciative that I had helped uh, Tony, and also helped. Um, I made some donations to. Uh, at that time, it was uh, um, through Tony uh, some, uh, a church, which ended up being Joe Torre's sister, who was a nun. Wow, that's crazy. Well, you know, in, in business today, uh, or just in relationships, one of the things that you never do is you never burn a bridge, and because uh, you never know who can help you. And here was a fellow who was um, uh, worked very hard, uh, but was a laborer, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't think that he'd have those connections that he did. Yeah. And he uh, brought him to our, our booth. I remember Joe asking, you know, as he was appreciative, what could he do? And all I said was. Uh, just wear some coats, you know, uh, and he put his whole staff in, and the Mets were the first team that uh, wore, professionally, that wore the uh, um, the jackets, and if you remember, Joe, uh, as just part of his uh, genre, would uh, cross his arms and put his foot on the mm-hmm. first step, yeah. and we got exposure on television, and once that happened, that uh, was uh, probably our first break. Yeah, so that's, a, that's an awesome story right there. I was reading, like, previous articles about uh like you guys getting licenses and stuff like that and uh i read the story about you going to like the nfl office like 33 times i think it was eight years four eight times years. a year yeah yeah so so you got all of them fairly easy besides the nfl one right uh no yeah. i would say fairly easy first of all you have to understand that with all of these things comes financial commitments yeah. with minimums meaning for example, our first license, uh, which was with baseball, mm-hmm. uh, was through an agent called License Corporation of America. I worked with a man by the name of, well, two people, Joe Grant, who ran the operation, and Ralph Arizari. Uh, my first contract was, I believe, $25,000 uh, and a royalty on each piece. But if we sold one piece, we had him pay him the $25,000. Yeah. regardless so it was a huge risk yeah. uh, at the time uh, but uh, we felt it was worth it and obviously at the end of the day it, it was so it's you know it's it's a combination of uh, of uh, having the product and the quality having the distribution and having the financial uh, uh, wherewithal and willing to take the risk yeah. So when you got the NFL one, did that take started to like a new level? Uh, the NFL clearly uh, was a catalyst. Yeah. Um, you see, the NFL has a huge advantage at uh, the retail level, not because of its sport. It's because of its timing. If you mm-hmm. think about retail in general, most of the retailers, a significant amount of their volume is done in the fourth quarter. Well, the fourth quarter is when football is, uh, uh, you know, uh, on the rise and at its peak, combined with a thing called Christmas. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it was uh, from all different um, points of, the, of interest and in value, uh, something that uh, um, uh, that no other sport really had. Um, Baseball's World Series was just about over in October. Uh, hockey was just starting. Um, so uh, basketball didn't start until later. 
So um, the football really between, and for us, the weather began to change. Uh, so the fourth quarter was really a, a key area for us, So and football uh, capped it. We became yeah. one-stop shopping, so the retailer could buy any of the sports, all of the sports from us. Gotcha. And uh, in the early 90s, you guys became like the number one sports brand, so how did you pull that off? <laughs> all right, I'll take it. How about all right? So in '92, uh, Phil Knight offered to buy you out, and you said no. What what happened? No, um, um, Nike at the time, uh, Phil Knight had come to our office, uh, quite frankly, unannounced. Uh, it was incredibly flattering. Uh, uh-huh. I did go out to uh, visit the facilities, which was amazing. He was very cordial. Um, at the time. Uh, uh, it was very clear to me that while it would, uh, from a financial point of view, it would be a windfall, uh, our people would lose all, the, the Connecticut operation would close, that would be 400 people without jobs, that they would want me to move to Oregon, and uh, uh, at the time I just felt that uh, that's not what I wanted to do. I had too many people that were loyal and had the passion, and I respected that, and uh, um, I didn't want to... Uh, uh, I just didn't want to so I had nothing to do with the money he certainly yeah. certainly the dollars were there so it wasn't a question of uh, finances so it was beyond that gotcha um, and then you said you left the company in 1996 uh, so what happened there what do you mean I retired oh you, <laughs> oh, you just, so you retired from it from 1996 so you left the business so uh, yes. so was there a reason why say was your most memorable moment uh at start like while running starter my most memorable moment yeah Coach Wooden, who I uh, 
what he stood for. Yeah. And uh, that's that. What yeah. else? What about how do you how do you feel about people are still wearing starter today? Well, uh, you, you got to define that. Um, I know there's been a renaissance on the uh, on uh, the vintage merchandise yeah. uh, to a point where they're paying two, three, four, five times what uh, we sold it for. Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting, um, and it goes to show that we had an iconic brand and have mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I was kind of saying it from like a celebrity standpoint. Like I've seen like a lot of even like like current athletes and like celebrities today like wearing it. Uh, so I want to know like how how do you feel about that still? Well, I, I whether it be a celebrity or not, anytime yeah. we saw a product or a person wearing our product, obviously uh, we always felt uh, um, appreciative. Um, yeah. Gotcha. Do you, so do you ever just like today like walk around and you see somebody just wearing like a starter jacket or hat? Well, I, I, you know, I do see some of those two different things. Uh, yeah. When I see the old ones um, or the vintage ones, I will yeah. say old vintage ones, you know, I can recall when we made it and, and uh, or what it stood for. Yeah. Uh, Sure. So, so by eye, you could tell if it was a, it's the vintage stuff or the new stuff, like in person, you yes. could tell. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. So, uh, did you see that the Alliance of America football, like the, the new league is actually going to be starter jerseys? I saw that. Yes. How do you feel about that? Well, I, it's not a question of how I feel because I don't <laughs> know the particulars. I don't know, yeah. you know, uh, how much exposure they're going to get. I don't yeah. know about the TV contracts. I don't know what, who, what's, there's a difference between in making an investment yeah. in a startup, which has its advantage because theoretically it should be cheaper. Mm-hmm. And that comp- and the company is gambling on that, plus the fact they're trying to link their, the past tradition of uh, professional sports to the present. Yeah. But on the same token, if it fails, um, it, uh, you know, it's not really a, a positive kind of reinforcement. But I, I have no opinion on on, what, on the new league because I don't know much about it at this point. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of new leagues coming up. I don't know how all of them will succeed or not succeed, but we'll see, I guess. So let's jump into your your basketball coaching career. Where where did your passion for basketball come from? Well, I started as a, playing basketball as a Jewish community center yeah. in New Haven, and uh, we lived in a yeah, I would say a tough neighborhood, but it was a mixed neighborhood, and the center was a place where we went and we played ball, and from there, I we played at the center, and uh, so I, I had that passion. 
I played in high school at Eddie Hillhouse High School and then uh, uh, freshman ball at Southern and then I, but the, it really was the coaching and I coached yeah. the JCC in 19, actually looking back at it, it's been really a lot of fun. I coached the JCC to a national, the only national championship they ever had. Um, and then I got a high school job uh, uh, while I was building a company at a prep school called Hamden Hall, mm-hmm. where we won eight New England championships, six consecutively. Uh, I'm trying to think what, I don't remember exactly what we won. I think we won so any event. Uh, I was there for 11 years. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, when I retired, I went to Florida uh, in 2004 um, and uh, 2003, and uh, ended up uh, coaching uh, another uh, prep school called Pinecrest, yeah. uh, which had never won any uh, districts or or even qualified for the state championships. And we won. We went to the state uh, final four six years in a row. Won three state championships. Uh, two of them with uh, a fellow you may, who's playing in the NBA now, Brandon Knight. Yeah. Um, and uh, ended up uh, within a little bit over I don't five hundred and over five hundred games and only losing about a hundred and. 20 or so but it too was a passion I love working with kids and yeah. I love the game how, how what was what was your what was your key to success of winning all these trophies and championships good players good players good coaching well no matter how good of a coach you are yeah. you don't have uh, good players <laughs> it's very hard to win but yeah. I think that there's a combination of two um, uh, we had a, a the coaching was combination of a business direction where I made parents and players sign a contract, a written contract with me prior to the season so that they understood the rules and also an understanding and building a relationship with the players that they knew you cared and you were trying to teach them and uh, being a help and supporter of them. And it worked out, you know, um, as I said, Hamden Hall was a wonderful experience. Pinecrest, the kids were terrific, and it was, both schools were high academic schools. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was terrific. Yeah, what, what was it like coaching Brandon Knight? Uh, he's uh, was and is a great player, and yeah. uh, we had some other great players. I, I can only tell you, I'll tell you one story about Brandon, and it probably tells you what it's like. Yeah. Sophomore year, I believe. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it was sophomore and junior year. And we were playing in the uh, regional fi- uh, uh, semifinals of the region. Mm-hmm. And if you lose, the season's over. Uh, if you win, you you go on to the state final four. Yeah. Uh, so it was the regional finals. And uh, we were playing a team called LaSalle at a neutral court in Florida. We were down 11 points with two and a half minutes to go. Mm-hmm. And I had done everything that I thought, uh, that I knew, called every trick that I could, and tried to motivate the kids as best as we could, but we were down and the kids knew that if they lost, the end of the season was over and I called timeout and Brandon looked at me and I looked at him and so 
And in the huddle, he had said to me in front of all the kids, Coach, they call me Coach B, Coach yeah. B, what time is practice tomorrow? Yeah. And the kids looked up at him. Knowing they're 11 points down, I said, Brandon, 4 o'clock, be there. He went out. We went out from there. He stole the ball, hit two threes in a row. Um, got a charge. It was created a charge. Mm-hmm. Had an assist. Scored fifty two points uh, for the game, and we ended up winning by three. He's of all the players I ever had. Obviously, being in the NBA, he was uh, athletically the best player. But the thing about him, it was a tremendous work ethic. Yeah. Uh, if he missed a couple of foul shots, he asked if he could use the shooting machine and come in and, and uh, have some extra practice. Or he, he would, and he was an honor student. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is a kid that uh, uh, could have gone any place. I remember bringing him up to see Coach James uh, Jones at Yale. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, he could have gone to Yale. I mean, he, but obviously, he went to Kentucky and. Uh, and uh, I know you have not one but two athletic centers named after you. So, what, what were those feelings like getting those? Um, well, <laughs> it, it was very nice. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, uh, each of us have an obligation, uh, regardless of our financial uh, wherewithal, is to give back and to share uh, within the community that has raised you. And especially people who have been supportive, and uh, in both the case of the the Jewish Center uh, naming its building, or uh, at the Rec Center at UNH or or Hampton Hall, mm-hmm. and all those three buildings, uh, uh, it was our family wanting to be and continuing to be supportive of the community, and it was great. Yeah, definitely. I love how you just contribute throughout like Connecticut and didn't like like you've said before like get up and like leave you could have just sold it but you like stayed everything in Connecticut because that's your home yep and uh, last one what advice would you give today to young entrepreneurs oh I'd give you a couple of things I mean uh, I certainly would tell you the proverb that they said about uh, uh, Edison which is 99% perspiration 1% inspiration meaning you got to work hard, and you got to build relationships. This generation um, uh, is tends to be quick and impersonal. Uh, I, I see it so often, even in our own family, our grandchildren. You know, they'll text people or send an email to people yeah. versus getting on the phone and calling somebody versus getting in a car and going and meeting them face to face. The texting may be quick and it may be current, but it's not a way that uh, you build real strong relationships. Uh, strong relationships are built eye to eye. So that you see the face of the people you're talking to. Yeah. Um, those are the kinds of things that uh, really make more sense. Um, and that's also the advice. You gotta work hard. You gotta work hard. You gotta work hard. Um, and you gotta build relationships. And uh, and I don't know any other way of building relationships other than face to face. We were one of a very very few companies, for example, mm-hmm. uh, that didn't have a showroom in New York or some other places. Uh, showrooms are set up, and the customer comes. 
to meet the customer in his uh, or, or their environment. Uh, that's the way you build strong uh, relationships. You show them you care enough. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Actually, that's what I've been doing recently, just me- meeting up with more people instead of talking to them on the phone. And like you said, it just it's just like a different impact, and they like have a different respect for you. So I appreciate you coming on. 